Hello and welcome once again to the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast, the best goddamned podcast in all of Oklahoma County, and by goddamned, I mean damned by God. Today on the show, we'll be talking with James Croft. If I could just remember how it is that we came across James Croft. Chess, do you, can you help me out with that? When we were at Skeptics of Oz a year and a half ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, in Wichita, in Wichita, Kansas. That's yes. right, you were, you, were a Twitter, you were having a Twitter fight with him. Doing, as per usual, I got into a Twitter beef. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we were watching a presentation. The presentation, a person was giving a presentation. It was a great presentation, really. Um, but they used a picture of Carl Sagan as part of their PowerPoint presentation. And the whole crowd went bananas. Absolutely lost their shit. And I got onto the Twitter hashtag and, of course, called them all idolaters. James Croft got on there and told me to be fucking reasonable. So uh, we hashed it out, but we really couldn't get anywhere. And so eventually we decided to meet and we asked him to lunch. And whenever he showed up, of course, he had on his Hail Sagan t-shirt. And that's how we met. And eventually we went on to lunch and we had a great time. Got in a tiff with him over Carl Sagan, and then we met him in person, and and we learned the lesson that people who fight on Twitter can actually be really nice in real life. Indeed, much friendlier in person. And then <laughs> we went to we went to lunch at that uh, was it Greek? It was a Mediterranean. Yes, it's a Mediterranean place in Wichita, Kansas. And he was delightful company. He was very bright, and we said we've got to have this guy on the show. Yes, and we've been seeking an interview for a year and a half now. That's right. We've been we've been uh, hounding his ass for like ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm guessing we aren't the only one, so... Nope, he's got a fine ass, you know. <laughs> Among other uh, fantastic qualities. So what's his uh, formal bio look like? James uh, is in the process of earning his doctorate degree in education at Harvard University. Okay, you're cutting out a little bit. So you said he's uh, he's earning his, his doctoral degree at Harvard right now, right? Yes. Okay, and he he works for the the institution formerly known as the Humanist Chaplaincy, is that right? Of course, yes, exactly. And but they kept the initials, and they are now the Harvard Humanist Community. Ah, well, that saves on the merch. You still have the HHC, you know, the monogram pillows and all that. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's a research and education fellow. So okay. So in other words, really bright guy, uh, philosophically inclined. Is there anything else we need to say for setup? Uh, yeah. It, James has recently. He's author of a great blog. Uh, under the name of Temple of the Future. And you can find that blog at the Pathios Network under their burgeoning atheist channel. Right, right. My second favorite source of atheist blogging on the internet. Mm, your prejudice is showing. Yeah, it sure is. That That's about it then. Let's let's cut to the show. All right, we are here with James Croft. Uh, first of all, do you see a lot of kilts in uh, Britain? <laughs> Is this bringing you back home? Lots of kilts being worn I here at Skepticon. I don't often see kilts in Britain, I have to say. Whenever I'm visiting back home in London, I, uh, a kilt is a rarity. And the utility kilt, like they have here, yeah, right. that is not something that we see very much in Britain. It's not something I've seen outside of skeptical and role-play gaming conventions. So that's pretty much the only place I've seen those. Yeah. I'd never seen it before. I didn't know it was a, a fixture at Skeptics. It's a thing. It's a thing. Conventions. You can have this, like these utility kill vendors at every single role-playing game and video gaming convention. Oh, okay, okay, I get it. Yeah, they're black. They're not anything like what you would see. They're not tar- they don't have any tartans or anything. No, sadly so. not. Yeah. 
And they're made out of durable, hardy fabrics that would stop the blow from a hatchet. <laughs> Full disclosure, don't do that. Let's go with the real light question. Yeah. How do you ground your moral frame? <laughs> a really light question, he yeah. says. I actually think that's a really interesting question that often stumps sort of humanist thinkers and philosophers. And I, th- I think the reason why, I don't have a really solid answer to this question. Great. But my current thinking is that it's actually, the question is poorly posed. I think the question makes a presupposition that moral frameworks require a particular sort of grounding which is in fact not available. Okay. Um, and I think that that's the problem. The problem is with the question, not with the answers. When people ask that, it tends to be theists who want to know what transcendent moral force sort of animates your moral framework or kind of secures it. Right. And I don't think that there are transcendent moral realities which we can reach you to ground moral frameworks. And so uh, the, the question sort of presupposes the existence of something I don't think exists. I think, I kind of think that I have the same position that Sam Harris has, which is that when we're talking about ethics, we need to have an understanding of what that means. When you ask someone, is it ethical to do X, Y, or Z? We have to have an understanding of what the question really is. Right. And what I think is that when we're asking, is X, Y, or Z ethical, what we are in fact asking is, does X, Y, or Z promote the flourishing of a human being? Let's okay. talk about just human beings for a moment. Um, and that it doesn't really make sense to ask, is something ethical or moral, period. Like that, I don't think, is a sensical question. I think that when you ask that, you're leaving out the fact that any... It's kind of like asking, well, what is the best way to get... Uh, how can I put it? It's like asking, what are the bi- best directions from here? Like that, that question doesn't have an answer unless you have a destination. Right. And so I think asking, is this the morally right thing to do? Is that, well, you need a kind of d- a goal to be aiming at for that question to have any sort of answer. And I think the goal is always assumed to be some sort of human flourishing. So that's what I think ethics means. So if someone asks me, is it ethical to do X? What I think they mean is, will it promote human welfare to do X? And if they mean something else by that question, they need to explain to me what it is. And I think that when you ask that question of the theist who asks, well, how do you ground your morality? They'll generally come up with something that's effectively uh, begging the question. They'll say, well, ultimately, they, what they think is it ethical to do X means is, is it what God wants us to do to do X? Okay. And, yeah. and so they, they have a, a definition of the question that's different to my definition. And if they want to use that definition, they have to justify that God exists and that God has moral desires that we can know and things like that. They've got a lot of work <laughs> before that's a problem for me. Right. right? And, and furthermore, I think it's a really good response to this question to bring it down to a specific like, so if people say, well, they often ask, well, what makes it wrong to eat babies? What makes it wrong? Yeah. And you can Anthony give a Dan. number of answers to that, which is that, well, it clearly harms babies, right, to eat yeah. them. It ends the existence of a, or organism that we might have reason to value, morally speaking. Yeah. Um, we don't, we can't provide a very good reason to do it, which is often a reason not to do something. Um, and so we provide a series of reasons, right, as to why. And they say, no, but what makes it wrong? And what they're really asking is, what other reason do you yeah. have not to harm people in some grotesque way, other than the fact that it causes them significant harm, and that, 
And I think that that's a really weird question, because what they're really saying is that they don't think it's inherently wrong to harm people in grotesque ways. In a way, yeah. That, so that's what, that's, that must be what they mean. Like, if they don't think it's enough to simply say that, for example, torturing someone to death is morally outrageous because of the extraordinary and excruciating harm that it, it does to someone, if they say that's not enough to make it wrong, what they mean is that causing excruciating pain to someone is not inherently wrong. And that's a very strange moral position to take. And most people will retreat from it when they are presented with that case. Um, so there's a, a number of justifications there. Firstly, I think the question is weird. Secondly, I think that there is this problem whereby we can easily give a lot of reasons for our ethical judgments, but they just don't seem to be sufficient to some sort of people. And then you can ask them, well, why aren't those reasons sufficient? Yeah. Why aren't those sufficient reasons for our moral decisions? And thirdly, there's a sort of justificatory move you can make which is that uh, the pragmatists say this, Dewey says this, and I think he's right. We actually need reasons to doubt things as well as to accept them. Um, it's not always appropriate to say, justify that, justify that, justify that, justify that. And we can see that if we, if we think in principle, any sorts of game, any game of reasoning can be extended ad infinitum by asking for justifications of some claim. Okay. There's no basic claim that can't be, uh, uh, have a justification requested of it. If someone says, right. oh, we shouldn't do that because God exists and God thinks it's wrong, I say, well, why shouldn't we do what God thinks is wrong? Yeah. And it says, well, because God is by definition good, and therefore what they judge is good. Well, why should we consider good what is defined as good? And you, you, you just can continually ask justifications of any claim. And so what the pragmatist said is at some point in the game of reasons, you actually have to shift the burden of, of questioning onto the doubter. Yeah. Like the doubter right. has to give good reasons to doubt it. And I think that that's often the case with our fundamental moral commitments. If you want to doubt that it's intrinsically a moral evil to torture someone to death, you have to give me good reasons to doubt it. Because yeah. I've got some pretty good reasons that seem good to me to um, suggest that it is wrong. So those are sorts of collection of very weird responses to that question. No, it's great. What you're getting at is that a lot of people want some, some kind of justification for morality outside of ourselves. Yes. They want something out there on high or whatever, some kind of... That, that's an issue for people. They're, they're not able to shift that framework to us. You know, we are our own navigators in yes. life. We get to make these decisions on what's, what's ethical. Also, I, I notice a lot of people want, uh, people want universals. You know, yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah, of I course think, it's I a challenge. Think that, again, I think Sam Harris is onto something with this moral landscape stuff in that I wouldn't say universals, but there are some sort of moral facts. I'm quite happy to say that there are moral facts in the sense that I don't think we can make any sense of the language of morality if we don't recognize that the language that we use to talk about human experience has built-in moral valence. And what I mean by that is when we say, well, someone is suffering, the word suffering includes in it a judgment that it's bad. Right. It includes badness. It is literally nonsensical to say, oh, they're suffering, but it's good, unless you're saying that they're suffering, but it's for a better purpose to prevent suffering to other people, right? Yeah. But suffering is intrinsically bad. The concept in it has a valence attached to it. And that's why I don't think it's nonsensical to say, no, it is in, it, it, we consider it intrinsically wrong to harm people. That's what harm means. Harm yeah. means wrong. It's different to a word which is, more, which is slightly different. It's not quite so morally weighted like pain. Like sometimes it's not wrong to cause people pain. And we can talk about people being in pain for various reasons, because of illness, or, and we don't have a moral weight attached to that word. But we don't talk about harming someone in the same way. When we say you harmed them, what we mean is we morally um, object to that. 
And a lot of our, our words for talking about morality have these sort of built-in intrinsic um, value statements. Um, and I think that that sort of muddies the issue. But I, I, I'm quite happy at this point to say it's, it makes sense to say it is actually inherently wrong to harm people. I mean, otherwise <laughs> you just can't understand what that statement means. Sounds reasonable to me. Let's shift to the atheist movement, if you want. Okay, let's All right. Big shift. All right, yeah, the big shift. So, um, you are a part of what I would say the tug of war of the yeah. atheist movement. What would you like to see the relationship be between skeptics, atheism, and uh, secular humanism? What do you say a bit more? What do you, when you see the tug of war, what do you see is happening there? Well, I feel like I see a lot of. Um, lines being drawn oh. drawn in the sand, you know, secular humanism doesn't ha- have all these moral, they're not as moral rectitude as I am. They don't, they don't have that. Oh, I see. Yeah, and so I, I want to, associ- I don't want to associate with secular humanism, and I don't necessarily, you know, there's kind of a mix where people can either say they're atheists or they're skeptics. They can say those interchangeably. But they don't necessarily want to say secular humanism. Yeah, okay, so I think uh, there's sort of two ways I think about this question. The first is, I'm a philosopher, and I'm interested in the development of humanist thought, and humanism as a life stance and a sort of comprehensive philosophy of life. And from that perspective, it seems pretty clear to me that historically, what has been called humanism as a philosophy includes skepticism and atheism. Yes. That basically, although originally there were humanists who were sort of deists, um, nowadays, what you mean when you say you're a humanist is that you're an atheist, and that part of your values is skepticism. There are lots of other values that come under that umbrella as well. But to say I'm a humanist but I'm not a skeptic, like we understand skeptic, it doesn't make any sense. Like the humanist manifestos, which are three pretty detailed explanations of what humanists at the time they were written believed, include commitments to scientific skepticism, to naturalism, to um, skepticism about religious claims and things like that. So philosophically speaking, I'm pretty clear in my own mind that humanism is basically a set of value positions, and that includes a commitment to scientific skepticism, and that that leads to a commitment to atheism and naturalism and all those other things. So when I say that I'm a humanist, I mean that I'm also a skeptic and an atheist, and I mean a lot of things by that. Um, Having said that, that's not how everybody sees it. Um, And... People clearly, uh, this has become very clear in some of the discussions that I've been having over Atheism Plus, they see humanism as something else. And I'm not exactly sure what they see humanism as, um, because I think what they're describing is not something I recognize from the people who write about the philosophy of humanism. Right. Um, But what they see it as being is, I think, a kind of sort of weaker, less confrontational version of um, everybody's right. Well, yeah, like, just, I think people think that humanists, in general, are less willing to be confrontational towards religious people and challenge religious truth claims and and talk about the danger that religion has in society and things like that. Um, I think that's a little ahistorical. I think that that view doesn't really take into account, firstly, where humanism came from and some of the major figures in who are self-identified humanists sort of throughout the last few decades. I mean, it's true that humanism has a weird relationship with religion in the sense that a lot of the people who came up with humanism as a philosophy of life 
were Unitarian ministers, basically. And they right. sort of came to humanism by being progressively less and less Christian until the point they got to was like, well, Christ is just some dude, and there probably <laughs> isn't a God, so you should probably come up with a new name for this thing we're believing because it's not really Christianity anymore. And so they, they kind of came out of the Christian tradition progressively less religious and sort of popped into what they called humanism. And they were very convinced that that the, the belief in God was not warranted. Like, even in the 1933 manifesto, there's this great line, which is like, the time for deism and all fo- other forms of new thought has passed. You know? <laughs> and, and, and it's so, so they were quite explicitly atheists, even back then. And many humanists across the decades have been very outspoken on religion. I mean, Paul Kurtz recently died. Yes. Paul Kurtz was, like... The, found, the father of secular humanism in America. He founded the Center for Inquiry. Right. He was very influential in what would today be called the Skeptics Movement. He basically made it happen as a movement. And he was a, st- he was a profound humanist, and he was a staunch religious critic. He was like the Chris Hitchens of his time. He's this <laughs> great long debates on YouTube between him and religious people. You can still see him. There's one which is like four hours long. You can watch the, the same debate and it just goes on and on and on. It's like, wow. And he's just dismissive. Like, he is dismissive of religion. And you read his books, and particularly the early ones. He's changed. He changed towards the end of his life. But um, he was really not having any of this religious bullshit. And I think that the issue here is that you, people can do their humanism very differently. Like, like any sort of philosophy of life, people prioritize different aspects of it. They express it in different ways. They, um, people are of different temperament and different skill sets. And some people are very good at doing debates and challenging religious people and things like that. And they have that temperament and they have that desire. And other people want to focus on other aspects. Because humanism is a very wide-ranging philosophy with a lot of commitments and a lot of areas. And probably no one can do justice to all those areas. So I kind of think that the perception that I've seen among some people that sort of humanists are less willing to be confrontational about religion is is not, it's a certainly not a necessary component of humanism. Um, and I don't even think it's an accurate description of much humanist activity across the last few decades. Um, and I always think it's funny when those criticisms are made because a lot of the people who I who make those criticisms identify themselves as humanists as well. Yeah. Like a lot of the most, so like people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens said, they were quite happy to call themselves humanists. Right. EZ got humanist of the year at the AHA conference. So I don't really quite know what, um, and I should say I'm quite happy to consider PZ and Richard Dawkins and other other people humanists. I think they totally kind of qualify as it were. Um, And, so I don't. I'm not sure where that perception came from, um, but I, I don't either. But you, right. you do see it's it's flourishing. I mean, it's hard to even kind of stamp it down. I mean, you could. I see you, uh, you know, responding to people who, who you yeah. have to explain the history. You go through the manifestos. Yeah. You know, explain just how, how atheism is rooted inside of humanism. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and so, but you have to you have to keep explaining that. Well, I think that people. Yeah, it is a bit odd. I mean, it's very few people who actually engage in these discussions. I always have to remind myself that the sort of percentage okay. of knowledge people who are actually okay. engaging in blog debates online is like this minuscule fraction of the whole community. I do that to myself but, too, yeah. yeah <laughs> just like, like sometimes you think, oh my god, everyone, there's disagreement. Like two <laughs> commenters on free thought blogs. And it's like, well, mm, not really. That doesn't represent everybody. But um, it is it is a bit frustrating to have those 
misconceptions repeated. And the only reason I care about it, and this is, uh, people also seem to think that I really want everyone to call themselves a humanist. I couldn't give a toss what people call themselves. If they have, if they express humanist values in their life, and they think that's important, they're going to organize around that, I don't give a shit what they call it. They call it atheism plus, they call it new atheism, whatever. And I think that basically new atheism is perfectly compatible with humanism. Right. Like sometimes I would say that some things that some new atheists have said or done is probably not in the best humanist spirit. Like, but not as a whole block. No, like exactly. You, you, no, you pick exactly up certain, right. certain people that you say, at that's not right. And say that this probably is not consistent with some of my other, value, my other values as yeah. humanists. Um, but that's a very specific, targeted sort of criticism. It's certainly not this fucking new atheist, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. Um, and I, I basically see all these different groups, the atheism plus, humanism, new atheism, stuff like that, as kind of different facets of the same jewel, as different um, ways of doing a, a particular sort of lifestyle. So that doesn't that sucks as a phrase. What I mean is different different ways of manifesting basically similar values. Okay. I mean, ultimately, I think that the fundamental values of someone like me and someone like Chris Hitchens are probably pretty much the same. We just express them differently, and we prioritize them slightly differently. He cares a bit more about some things, and I care a bit more about other things. But I think that they're basically the same. And I'm very happy to see people do what they want to do under the heading that they want to do it. Yeah. I yeah. just Go I do just, that. What I'm not happy is for people to to spread factual misinformation about a tradition that I care a lot about and that I yeah. think has added a lot to the world. Because that is just, it's just not true. And so people should have some care for the truth. That's my, I don't know, I'm old-fashioned in that way. Well, let's do some more debunking. Um, <laughs> I know that this is another part that you had to explain a lot. Can you maybe explain for us the secular aspects of the chap- of chaplaincy work? Oh, wow. <laughs> so this is a thing we get into a lot of trouble with. So, for one, the interesting thing, the humanist chaplaincy at Harvard is no more. There is no such thing as the humanist chaplaincy at Harvard. Oh. The humanist chaplaincy at Harvard is now the humanist community at Harvard. And we made that change partly because of the response in, yeah. in some of the community who really dislike the what they see as a religious term of chaplain, which is perfectly fair because historically it has been a religious term. Yeah. Um, and so, firstly, I want to say we're sensitive to that criticism. Um, and we care about what people think and how people perceive our organization. So we changed that name. Um, but Greg is still an atheist chaplain, right? Greg right. Being my boss is still the atheist chaplain at Harvard University. And I think first it's, it's worth pointing out how that came about because people seem to think that we sort of decided that what we would call ourselves was atheist chaplains. And that's not what happened at all. Basically, about 40 years ago, there was all sorts of chaplains at Harvard ministering to the religious needs of students of different religious uh, persuasions. But there was no one who was providing a similar sort of service, a sort of support for the sort of existential and pastoral elements of life that uh, undergraduate students often need um, for non-religious students. Non-religious students simply had a gap in their provision there. They didn't have anyone to talk to unless they wanted to actually go and see a therapist. And for many people, they don't want when they're just struggling with certain aspects of their life to go and see a clinician. They don't feel like they are um, ill, and they don't like the connotations that that has going to see a clinician. Too they would formal. rather speak to someone, yeah, maybe too formal, or they would rather speak to someone who they feel like understands their basic perspective on life, and who is going to offer a sort of 
uh, a listening ear and uh, sympathetic is going to give them sympathetic advice. And um, a alum of Harvard realized that there was this sort of gap in provision for non-religious students and say, hey, let's fix that, and endowed a humanist representative in this group of people who was doing this work for Harvard students. And it just so happens that because those people were called chaplains, then this person became called a humanist chaplain. And 40 years ago, that wasn't so weird because the language of religion has changed a lot in the last few decades. Like it was when humanism was first found in the 30s and, and for quite a considerable time afterwards, they were quite happy to call it a religion. They just thought it was a new form of religion that didn't have God in it. And now language has shifted in such a way that that's not really acceptable. No. Religion doesn't mean the same thing, and we sort of, that word has become very much identified with God belief and things like that. Um, so there is a, has been a humanist chaplain at Harvard for a few decades because someone thought that non-religious students deserved equal provision to religious students. And I think that's a good impulse. I right. think that's a great impulse. And I am less concerned with what that office is called than about what it actually provides to students at the university. And I have certainly found as a student there, and I know that many other students feel the same, that having a person who is dedicated professionally towards um, caring for your pastoral and sort of existential needs, like what am I doing with my life, where am I going, those sorts of questions, Um, and dedicated to creating a community of people who share the same sort of values on campus for you to plug into, it's been extraordinarily valuable. It's certainly been valuable to me. I love the fact that we have a vibrant humanist community on campus that I can go to and talk to people about, oh, the trouble I'm having with this, and um, that uh, discuss like philosophical ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have an outlet for otherwise, just talk about how we're dealing with life from a non-religious perspective. That's really neat. Yeah. And it's just like having a student, well, we do have student groups on campus, but the student groups we have on campus really benefit from a single professional organizer who is there to support us 24-7. I mean, that is an extraordinary boon. And it doesn't mean, and this is a continual misconception that I continually tell people is wrong, but they never believe me, that I'm going to try again tomorrow. Or, or <laughs> we'll see if people believe me off this. That Greg tells everyone what to do and that he's like the bishop. Like, that is so far from the truth that it's hilarious. Right. Greg hardly tells, like, anybody what to do. He is, like, one of the most non-authoritarian individuals I have ever encountered. He exists to support the needs of the students who are there. And when the students say, we want to do this, he's like, then that's what I want to do. And that is, it's great to have such a person on campus. Um, And I think that it's worth pointing back to this aspect, this sort of existential aspect, which is how, how I term what some of what Greg does is, religions are really good at providing people with narratives and frameworks to help put their life together into a coherent whole, right? To make yeah. it seem like you're not just doing one thing after another, but it kind of means something. And yeah. it, you're part of a, a bigger story. And I don't see any reason why non-religious people shouldn't also want to make meaning out of their life in that same way, right. but they often don't have the institutions that help them to do that. There really isn't a secular meaning-making institution <laughs> like churches do. Like when you go to a church and you go to a service, yeah, you get told some moral message and you have a great community and that's very important, but they also kind of make you feel part of something bigger than yourself. Not just the community that's there, but the sort of worldwide community of the religion. And also, 
they have these sort of cosmic narratives that about where human beings came from and where we're going and why it's important that you exist and act in a certain way. Yeah. And when I read Carl Sagan's writing, that's exactly the same sense I get. I feel like Carl Sagan was kind of crafting a very humanistic narrative of the of the sort of his human story from the very start of the universe to now, mm-hmm. and why it's important to act in a certain way towards each other with kindness and compassion, with uh, respect for our reason and intelligence and things like that. And I see chaplaincies, whatever you're going to call them, communities for humanists, on campuses and off campuses, as providing that sort of existential role of helping people grapple with questions, not necessarily answer, but ask and grapple with questions like, who am I, with a capital W and a capital A, <laughs> capital I, yeah. and what am I doing here? And what am I supposed to do in life? Not that we think that we're going to get an answer from on high, right. but that we think that by working with other people who roughly share the view that there aren't any answers coming from on high, we might come to develop an answer for ourselves. Yeah. And that sort of community space is really valuable. I think a lot more people would find value in it if they, if they had any experience of it. It's just that in most parts of this country, nothing like that exists for non-religious people. So all they can imagine is something that is basically analogous to the Catholic Church yeah. with Richard Dawkins at the top of it. And they don't want that. And <laughs> no, I that's, that's terrifying. I don't yeah. want that either. No, yeah. it's, it's horrific. I think the best thing that we would have, or the closest thing we would have to a chaplaincy is going to a, a Unitarian Universalist church. Yeah, which yeah. you don't really want to do because, let's be honest, it's too Christian. It's yeah. like blatantly wears its Christianity very heavily upon itself. And it's too wooish. It's it very wooish. It's wooish. And I think it turns atheism into a religion. And that's not the, the, the view we want that's to not what people perpetuate. Want to do we don't want to show that yeah. or say or even imply that that's the case. Yeah, and some people don't like being around you know, religious symbols, I don't personally have an issue with it, but some people don't like that. Yeah, so. I, you know, I'm very, I, let me be totally honest in this podcast, I like religion. And what I mean by that, <laughs> what I mean by that is, I like the sort of communities and the rituals and ceremonies like good and the music and the aesthetics and the things like, I, I like religious services, I like going to them. I like going to them even when I think they're spouting bullshit 90% of the time. Right? I like the singing, I like the holding hands of the people and sharing the peace. And like yes, the, yeah. I like the whole structure it gives to existence. Now, and I don't think that's a failing on my part. I recognize that everyone else doesn't agree. And yeah. that's totally okay. People are totally free to violently disagree with that perspective. <laughs> Not everyone's going to like it. But I don't think it makes me a really bad person that I, I actually like that stuff. But um, why was I saying that? Why did I make that great revelation? Okay. Because, it, it, because the Unitarian Universalist yeah. Church implies that atheism is a religion. So, so I'm not so worried that it's going to look a little bit like a religion, but what I don't like about the Unitarianism is sitting next to the crystal healers and the, yeah. the oh. mother goddess people. And these are great people, right? Looking They're great human them. beings. But I just don't want to deal with that in my community. Right. I don't want to have to have an argument about why crystals don't heal you and homeopathy and anything. <laughs> frankly, many Unitarian communities that I have visited, just speaking from my personal experience, are a bit soft on the reason front. They don't have that solid commitment to scientific naturalism that I expect in a sort of humanist community that I want to be a part of. And so the ideal humanist community for me would look really quite different even than a Unitarian church. Yeah, because they're, they're the ones that say, not the humanists, but it's the universalists that say everyone's good. 
everyone's everyone's right in their own they way. They have a certain. They tend to have a certain each to their own truthiness about them. Yeah. And that is a bit annoying because some things are just bullshit. And yeah. it's worth saying that because some things are harmful bullshit and you really need to tackle those. Um, and even the things that are not harmful, they still really should go away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's. I don't feel at home in Unitarian communities. The closest things I've found is our, our community at Harvard and ethical culture communities, which are humanistic Congregations yeah. that, um, that, for the record, I did the I did the quotes. The scary quotes. I said congregations that um, were founded by some guy. I'll be talking about this tomorrow. Some guy, hundred years ago or so, um, and we still exist today. And that do not look very religious, mm-hmm. um, and they're very very humanistic in value set, and uh, that's why I'm training to be an ethical culture leader, which is sort of like their clergy. Actually, when they say sort of like their clergy, it's completely and say, actually, officially, legally speaking, their religion is their clergy. Oh, nice. But, um, yeah. But that is a historical artifact. I mean, technically speaking, humanism is religion in America. It's protected as a religion. And you can do ceremonies and, like, marry people. Oh, yeah. All I, right. I, I, see look, that, that I am a humanist celebrant, and I have got that, human, that, that certification through the American Humanist Association. You don't get more sort of atheist than that, they right. are very strong atheists, but that is a that means I'm clergy. In the eyes of the law I am a clergy person. Right. So sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Actually there is a big debate right now going on amongst um, ethical culture leaders about tax exemption for clergy. Because yeah, they get it. Really? There we yeah. go. They get it. And, and hey, that, that, I don't know which way that brings you down on the argument, whether that means we should get rid of it, or whether because atheists can quite happily claim it, that means it's okay. I, I say, we take advantage of what we can. I, 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 I say we should all pay our taxes. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Well, yeah, either, either we all do or, you know... I, I think this is a difficult one. I, I mean, I, my instinct is that they should get rid of clergy exemptions on taxation, particularly right. property exemptions. Well, yeah. Um... On the other hand, there are a lot of professions that get property exemptions, and the reason why clergy get property exemptions is the same as why a lot of non-religious professions get tax exemptions for that, which is that basically they often have to travel, because they'll be put in a congregation to lead over it by whoever is leading their religion, and they have to move somewhere they've never been before Hmm. to do their job, and so they get that. And other people, like military people who are in a similar situation, they also get those sorts of tax exemptions. So, it's actually a slightly more complicated issue than than many people understand, I still think it probably should go. I mean, I well, the history textbooks say that they get they get tax exempt because you know they they provide a service, uh, you know, a charitable service to their community. Yeah, and isn't that true? Well, like, yeah, but not all their money. Not all the money they get. No, I mean, not even majority. You see, uh, I think you could make a case for. I almost want to make a case for it just to be bloody minded. <laughs> I, I, I think it probably should go, but I, I actually think. I mean, I am of the perspective that religious communities offer often a lot of valuable things to their to their local area. Oh, I do. There are a lot of social benefits you get by joining a, a religious community. That does not mean that there are also a lot of bad shit that they do. Right. Because that is also true. Like, and you have this very strange situation that you have we found this out so every year the graduate community at Harvard, the graduate humanist community goes on a spring break service trip and they organize a week long trip to work with um, 
some charitable organization on a particular issue that we think is related to humanist values. And last year, we went to, I guess this year, in March, we went to um, L.A. to work with homeless gay youth. And we particularly chose that because we thought that many religious organizations will not work so effectively with queer people because of the shit in their religion about how being gay is wrong. Right. And so we chose that because we thought we could make a particular impact as humanists. And one of the things we found to be most annoying is that so many homeless shelters are in churches because no secular organizations will let them have homeless churches, uh, homeless centers in them. They just won't. They can't find secular organizations that are willing to put up with all the stuff that comes along with having a homeless shelter. And so we had this weird spectacle of talking to homeless gay youth in this really concern, obviously really theologically conservative church with all the stuff on the walls that was made. And I'm like, well, how comfortable are these kids going to be in the yeah. setting? Many of them have experienced serious prejudice from their religious community, and now they're being asked to go back into a church to like get a blanket and food and shit like that, a really conservative theological church. That is not ideal. And so that really sucks. But you have to admit that what also sucks is that secular society has not stepped up to fulfill that need. Like, we just haven't. And that's one of the reasons why I think building things like local humanist communities is extraordinarily valuable. Because you can start providing the sorts of services religions often provide and get people out of having to go to religion to get it. Yeah. Like when, when the only place you can get free childcare on a Sunday is a church, that is a very big pull. Like, people <laughs> make use of those facilities. Yeah, mommy... Yeah. Well, they, and you know, people actually have needs. Like, people do need crutches occasionally. Like, it's yeah. not like by providing childcare they're doing something inherently immoral. But people often, like, they want to spend some time away from their kids doing something else often. That's okay when you're a parent. And if there were humanist groups offering secular Sunday schools, teaching rationalist values, while at the same time the adults could be engaged in some discussion about, you know, the latest attempt to teach evolution and uh, teach creationism in schools, right? Yeah. That sounds like, to me, like a pretty valuable social institution, which in most parts of this country don't exist. And it's, it's on us to make that happen. Hey, uh, I know you wanted to go. It's been 35 minutes. Okay. <laughs> do you have any? I can do one more question if you want. Um, well, I know you have one more. Yeah, I did have one more question. Uh, I was going to save it for... I knew. We're going to try and get you to... <laughs> go to another podcast maybe later, but uh, this one is about, I, I know that um, the HCH has experimented with songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I've been embarrassing. Yeah, well, and I've also seen, I, I also follow your Twitter feed, where you, you went to a gay chorus, you know. I sing in a gay chorus, yeah. Oh, okay, you do. Well, I remember you, 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 it was a great experience for you, and yes. I can see how you'd want to replicate that in the HCH and, and also the rest of humanism. What, what, can you maybe give a, a story of this what you... my ideal humanist community would be singing all the freaking time. Like, <laughs> one of the main things I love about religious spaces is that they let you sing with other people and not feel embarrassed about it. Right. Look, I think communal singing is a deeply felt human desire by many people. Like, mm -hmm. people get around a campfire and they sing with each other all the time, and music is one of the definitional cultural elements of what it means to be a human being. There's no human culture I know that didn't have some form of music, some form of singing, some form of communal singing as part of important parts of their life. People sing together to celebrate great victories, to commiserate when they've lost something important, right. at funerals and things like that. They, 
singing is a deeply human thing. And I think humanism should try and cater to all the aspects of what it means to be a human being. And I think that this argument that I sometimes get, that we shouldn't sing together as humanists and atheists because religious people do it, is a freaking dumb argument. <laughs> because just because religious people do something doesn't mean that that thing is inherently religious. Right? right? I actually think it's a really good reason not to let religious people steal good things like, yes. from the culture. How dare we get into the trap? I, I think it's just a reflection of unconscious religious privilege that people still carry around even when they're an atheist. Which is, well, singing and stuff like that is for religious people, not for people like me. And I think that that is really sucky because singing together with other people is one of the things I love to do the most. Now... So I would love humanist communities to sing more. One of the things I loved when I went on my first ethical culture leaders retreat is that they sang together every night. They sang old protest songs and the Beatles and wow. whatever songs about love they had. And we, all, we got around a, a guitar and we sang um, together. And I just thought that was a very deeply human thing to do and there's nothing religious about it, even though ethical culture is a religion. And, um, uh, <laughs> it gets complicated quickly. Yeah. Um, so... I like communal singing. I like doing it even when the songs are religious. I just think it's a fun thing to do. It, it pushes my buttons. That doesn't mean everyone has to do it. Like, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But don't tell me I can't do it. That's the thing that annoys me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at HCH, we've experimented over time with music. And we definitely want music to be a bigger part of what we do. And we had a great event recently where we gave our Humanist of the Year Award to the people who founded OKCupid. Okay it turns out that we're having a year-long sequence of love and relationships, and it turns out that OkCupid is one of the only, is I think the only dating site where identifying yourself as non-religious or atheist increases your chances of getting a date. In fact, <laughs> saying that you're not religious is one of the six top things you could do to increase your chances of getting a date on OkCupid. Wow. Part of the reason we think is because the founders are openly atheistic, and they talk about that on their blog, and they make fun of religion, and things like that. <laughs> They've created a space where people can openly and happily and honestly express their non-religious identity in an era of life where often that's a detractor. Yeah. Uh, like, in dating, it often makes it more difficult. And that's certainly true on many of the dating websites, which are so fucking religious and woo-based. Yeah. Like, <laughs> chemistry and e-harmony and right. the yeah. like, algorithms. One of the other things about that they were very adamant about when they talk about it is that the, the matching algorithm they use in OkCupid is, has no woo in it. All it does <laughs> is it asks you to answer questions and it asks you to answer how your ideal match would answer the same questions, and then it matches people simply on the basis of that. That's all it does. It doesn't add any sort of faux psychological profiling on top of that. Right. It just trusts you to say what you want and matches you on the basis of that. And if the match then sucks, it's because you don't know what you want. And so, uh, so, which is often the case, right? Totally. But, um, or not being so honest they're, they're very, uh, like... No pseudo-scientific psychological matching goes on there, and they're very open to atheists and LGBT people, which not all dating sites have been or are, and so there's that whole thing. Um, and before they came up to accept the award, we had a great band called Quiet Company from Texas. Their um, album, We Are All Where We Belong, is one of the best albums of explicitly humanist music I've ever heard. I think it may be the only album of explicit humorous music I've ever heard. Uh, although I haven't listened to it all. Um, 
And they want, they set out, and some people will cringe when they hear this, but they set out to write church music for atheists. Right. And God damn it, if it isn't some of the coolest stuff I've ever heard, because I freaking love Christian rock, even though it's Christian. <laughs> so this stuff, is, I know people are going people to have gasping like the jaw drops. I like it. It calms me down. Um, <laughs> I could sing a whole bunch of it. Um, I went to Ted Haggard's church once, and they sung all the way through the whole thing, and I was got my hands in the air. <laughs> I did. Someone came up to me afterwards and said, it's so good to see young people so filled with the Spirit of the Lord. <laughs> and I was like, actually, I'm an atheist. I'm a public speaker for atheism and humanism, but I really like to sing. And you should have seen their face. Wow, that was funny. Um, but yeah, I like that stuff. But Quiet Company was great and they they gave they elevated that event in a very significant way by singing about love from an explicitly humanist perspective it sort of tied it together and it gave it an aesthetic quality that it wouldn't have had without them and it made it it would have been a good event before it made it a super event and i think that we we need to do a lot more of that another example jody pico came and accepted an award from us she's a brilliant author and she is one of the most successful women authors in the world and um, she had written a book called Sing You Home, which is about a woman breaking up with her husband, realizing that she was in love with a woman, and the fallout of that and everything. So we gave her an award for, and she's not religious, and the book also deals with issues of religion and non-religion, and there's a line in it which says, like, atheism is a new gay in the book. Someone says <laughs> um, So she deals with these issues very openly. And so we gave her an award for that. And before she accepted her award, we had a great musician called John Grant, who sings about his experience of being gay in the Midwest and religious, and he sings about it very openly, and that was one of the best events we've ever done. Like, the, his music, he was just playing the piano and singing, and it was so powerful, and it made me cry buckets. I'm a big softy, I cry anything. But this, I cried <laughs> a lot. I was even above the norm. Um, and that was a brilliant event. It was like I really palpably felt the humanism in the room. People are going to hate how I talk about this. Like, it really made me get the values deep in my gut. Yeah, no, I really, it it kind of went, oof, this is what it's like to be a humanist. This is great. (laughs) And I want more of that. Now, our community is not all of one mind on this. When I say our community, I mean the people who come to our events and who, so we tried once before an event to have everybody sing um, Love is All You Need. That acapella? was an embarrassing failure. Yeah, acapella, we just handed out the, the music, no notes, just the words, and we just tried to sing along. We didn't even play it or anything, we just tried to sing it. That, that was not a great success. Um, and not everyone was very comfortable with it. And it's, it's yeah. one of those difficult conundra which we come up against all the time, which is that many people who are really active and care a lot about their humanism, their atheism, their skepticism, care about it partly because they're coming out of a religious background that's harmed them. And that they want to really um, make a clean break with that past and not have anything to do with anything that reminds them of that bad experience. And that, that, I totally understand that. On the other hand, there are aspects of human experience that have sort of been colonized by religion and therefore associated with religion, but that non-religious people might really like if they encountered them in the right context mm-hmm. and that I think they're missing out on by not having the opportunity to explore those things. Like if you prime it right, you know, you had all the well, right yeah, basics maybe. together, they might actually enjoy it. Yeah, they might enjoy it. They might really enrich their lives very significantly. And so I feel like 
one of the things that we can do in our humanist community, I, uh, to be honest, I feel like there are already a lot of spaces for people who, who are very, very, um, want to make a break for their religious past and don't want anything to do with anything that looks like a religion. There yeah. are meetup groups, there are lots of places that do, that fulfill that need already amazingly, and they're wonderful, I'm glad they exist. What I'm looking for in a community is something slightly different, and at the moment, the sort of thing that I'm looking for doesn't really exist. What I'm looking for is something more emotionally intense, more sort of communal and congregational informed, more aesthetically informed, um, somewhere where there's a beautiful building and a group of people who care about the same sorts of things, who are willing to sing about it and act and do service projects and things like that together. And it's hard to find a community like that if you are an atheist. And my feeling is that as America becomes more and more non-religious, and as the stranglehold on the culture that religion currently has, particularly conservative religion, weakens, and then we saw it weaken last week in a major way in yes. the election, like we really dealt a blow to religion's stranglehold in this culture, people will, will go through a developmental process. And we, we've seen it a lot in members of our own community where they, they, they get to this point where they have made peace with their religious past. They're not religious, they don't want to be religious anymore, but they've kind of made peace with it and they start asking a different set of questions, which is like, now God is dead to me, really dead. I'm not clinging on to the fact that he doesn't exist really hard. Yeah. Because now God is truly dead and buried. What next? Next. That's what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow morning. All right. Um, <laughs> that was perfect. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it's the early. I need to fucking write it. Yeah, I know. So yes. you it's nine thirty. I'm very close to finishing. Oh, I, I, I have to. Is it nine thirty? And I'm going to be doing singing. I'm good. No, I'm not. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a communion. It's going to be atheist communion. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> <laughs> you make a, you really raise a good point, you know, because I I, re, I believe that religion is dying. Yeah. And I it is going away. So where how how do we go about creating these communities that will continue to reach out to these people that need that help that religion has provided? Mm-hmm. You've talked about you know there are people real need. ready to be plucked. You know they're not atheists. Oh, they're yeah. non-religious. And, they're and not religious, religious. and they're not together. active in our community yet. And they could be. Right. Yeah. They have souls to reap out there. Like, but, yeah, you know, we get together and we volunteer at the food bank every now and then, but, I mean, yeah. that really is so little compared to what we could be doing. I think so. I think I think what he's saying is right, is that we we don't have a lot to offer. We have a lot of evidence to change your mind. Right. But once that's done, or once you're on that path, you know, we don't have a lot to supplant or, or help them find something else that they right. once had. Right. I, we don't have a lot. And uh, people often say there are lots of secular alternatives to religion. There's things like book clubs and things like that. And, right. And activist groups and things. And the guy who founded the ethical culture movement, which is that sort of humanist religion I've been talking about, he had a really good response to that, which is like, yeah, but the problem with those things is that they sort of fragment people into all sorts of different little groups. And that what you'll get is a society that's sort of atomized in between people who, who share common interests but don't ever connect with people who share common values, which is a slightly different thing. It's kind of different to go to a book club because I love science fiction books than yeah. to go to a community <laughs> because I care about women's rights and, and um, uh, compassion for all human beings and environmentalism and reason in public right. affairs and things like that. That's kind of a different prospect. And he thinks that these institutions could act as sort of like 
generators for high-level values, so that people go there, they get re-engaged with their, their sort of high-level commitments. They're like, oh, that's why I care about skepticism. I'm going to go do something about it. I'm going to vote against that bill. Teach creationism in my classroom. And he said that in the in the 19th century when we didn't have as good social science as we do now, and everything he predicted is absolutely true. Like, all the studies show, and I'll be talking about this tomorrow, that being a member of a moral community massively increases your civic participation. Like, very significantly. Right. And that is a real problem for the atheist movement, because as you become more... Like, as you become an atheist, you're going to stop going to church, probably. Right? Yeah. It's more likely that probably. you're going to stop going to church. And so... You're, and you're not going to start going to a non-religious community most of the time, because most of the places, they don't exist. Mm -hmm. So at the same time as we're sort of winning the war of values by getting less people to hold those sorts of values and give them up, they're going to become less engaged civically than they were before, because they don't have the communities to kind of generate that engagement. And so we're sort of winning, but at the same time, we're sort of losing the sort of engagement that we could have if we really had spaces which pick them up and say, now's the time. So the thing about peer pressure, like, there needs to be some well, kind of peer pressure. Peer to get pressure. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with a certain amount of healthy peer pressure. I, don't think I so know either. that I'm not at my best when I'm sitting at home, like, in front of my computer, playing XCOM or whatever it is I could do for 10 hours straight. Yeah. I kind of <laughs> want people looking over my shoulder and encouraging me to be my best self. And that's one of the things that this humanist community provides me. Like, I feel like when I go there, people kind of expect me to represent a certain set of values. And I don't mind that pressure at all. I like it. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a certain, there is a divide in our community between people who think that the sort of, the humanist ideal is this very radical individualism where no one makes a demand of anybody else. And there's sort of a libertarian humanism that sometimes exists. And yeah. what I see is a much more communitarian form that I would say recognizes and understands that human beings need each other to be the best that they can be. And that you leave people to their own devices and things start to go wrong pretty quick. I mean, <laughs> people get lonely. And modern society is kind of lonely and atomizing. I go around and give a lot of these talks and spend time after just talking to people, and they say, you know, that they like they would like a community where they could go to because they're kind of lonely, and their meetup group is a great thing, but it's not quite a community that they feel like they can rely on other people there. They go to the meetup group and they like the people they see there, and they hear a great talk and they have a good discussion, and they go home. Yeah. But if they get sick, it's like they're not like they can call someone up. Right, right. So that's that. Well, I guess that's all the time he has for us. <laughs> and there he goes. There, there he went. Yeah, he was uh, actually in a hurry to finish up his presentation. So. Oh, right. Oh, right. He was a speaker, so he had to go get his next uh, talk ready. Mm -hmm. And it was a great one, too, so don't miss that one. Okay, well, hey, thanks a lot, Chaz. Uh, and uh, be sure to tell James thanks a lot from the uh, the other co-executive deputy producers. <laughs> well, have a good evening, all. The Oklahoma Atheist Godcast is produced by the Oklahoma Atheists. The mission of the Oklahoma Atheists is to develop a community of individuals and families who value and promote critical thinking, free thought, reason, and a scientific worldview, and who seek to have a positive effect on the community at large through fellowship, rational discussion, community service, and education. For more information, please visit our website at www.oklahomaatheist.com. The music for today's show is from the song God is Dead by Jaron Lake and is reproduced here under a Creative Commons license. 
Jared's Music and the Oklahoma Atheist Godcast are hosted courtesy of the Internet Archives Community Audio Collection, available at www.archive.org. To join discussion about the ideas presented, presented in today's show, please visit our blog at blog.oklahomaatheist.com.